we are a part of that collection of two white men <laughs> doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. Does that differentiate us at all? Or does I'm, it? I'm, totally helps with the topic. We're talking, we're talking about, about musicals. Yeah, we're talking about musical theater. <laughs> I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the gospel of musical theater wherever you get your podcasts. ES Audio. Hello, I'm Nick Curtis, the Standards Chief Theatre Critic. I'm Nancy Durrant, Culture Editor. And I'm Nick Clark, the Deputy Culture Editor. Coming to you from the heart of London's West End, this is the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. We're outside the Harold Pinter Theatre, which is currently home to A Little Life. Each week we bring you two reviews of what's on in London right now, plus amazing interviews. This is what we've got coming up on today's show. We'll be reviewing Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations by the creators of The Jersey Boys. Ain't too proud to bear, it's That's now on at the Prince Edward Theatre. We'll be joined by sex education star Amy Lou Wood and John McCree to talk about their roles as Sally Bowles and the MC in Cabaret. I think Mine Hair is really the moment that people go, oh, this is not the film. And you, and that, that can be a little bit scary sometimes, like, because some people, you can tell, really want the chair. I caught up with them backstage before an evening performance at the Kit Kat Club. Plus, what did we think of the new National Theatre revival of Dancing at Lunacy? Well, there is one memory of that Lunacy time that visits me most often. And what fascinates me about that memory is that it owes nothing to fact. In that memory, atmosphere is more real than incident, and everything is simultaneously actual and illusory. When I remember it, I think that it's dancing. Directed by Josie Rourke, the play stars Justine Mitchell, Derry Girls Siobhan McSweeney, and Father Ted's Ardlo Hanlon. Welcome to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Today we're coming to you from the Harold Pinter Theatre. We're in the auditorium, uh, slap bang in the middle of the stalls. This theatre was rebuilt in the 1950s, but the layout was pretty much preserved, I believe. It's a really beautiful theatre, this one. Really, you know, subtly gorgeous rather than some of the sort of flashier, slightly vampier theatres. Yeah, I slightly love the powder blue. It was built in 1881 by Thomas Verity, named the Royal Comedy Theatre, though it had no right to use the word royal, so they dropped that after three or four years. And it was uh, the comedy theatre for decades until it was renamed for Harold Pinter during his lifetime in respect of many of his plays that were premiered here. Uh, And there is an apocryphal story that when this idea was first mooted, Pinter didn't really want to be ostensibly seen to endorse it because it seemed vain, but he was sort of supposedly lobbying behind the scenes for this to to happen. And he uh, supposedly rang up Tom Stoppard and said, look here, Tom, what do you think about this idea of renaming the comedy theatre after me? And uh, Stoppard supposedly said, Harold, wouldn't it be easier to change your name to Harold Comedy? (laughs) (laughs) We have a clear view of the stage and the set of A Little Life, a play we reviewed on a previous episode starring James Norton. Yeah, it's having quite a good run at the moment, the Harold Pinter. We were also here at this theatre a few weeks ago uh, when we interviewed Jenna Coleman and Josie Rourke for Lemons, 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 which we also reviewed. We did also review that. And it's also where uh, Jodie Comer did the brilliant Prima Facie, isn't it? Which uh, has just opened on Broadway to knock out reviews, surprise, surprise. Oh, Jodie. Oh, Jodie. Yeah, she won the Evening Standard Theatre Award for Best 
Best Actress last year. She did indeed in what is only her stage performance. She'd only ever been on stage once before oh, that. When heck. she was sort of 18 years old or something. Yeah. And had purely done TV and film. It's incredible. She got the Olivia as well. She's, yeah, I was going to say she's pretty much won everything. And she's yeah. absolutely <laughs> wearing them on Broadway. I have yeah. to say, I mean, I, I just thought that was a, a sort of unicorn performance. Yeah. Given that it was a one person show as well on a really serious, quite tough subject yeah. do we um, use that about actors now because I've only ever heard it in a football context he's a unicorn, unicorn. footballer <laughs> I think she is because she's such a sort of standout you know she doesn't come from any of the you know she's not properly trained or yeah. you know not, not formally trained yeah, I should yeah, say yeah. Mm. so she's just an innate, I think she is a unicorn I think she's amazing yeah. she's also she's very a... tall and very good skin as we discovered as of as most unicorns as, yeah. as, as everyone yeah. knows <laughs> having never seen her being totally gutted to have missed it I can actually catch up with it I yeah think, you right? can it's on the. I think it's on National Theatre Live at the moment, which is fantastic. Or I mean, is it I, National Theatre at Home, NT at Home. Is NT at Home. I, I think that's what it's. Do you called. know what? Google it. You'll find it. Yeah. <laughs> you'll find it. Should point out, she doesn't have a horn sticking out of her forehead. So. <laughs> yeah, they CGI that out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what else is going on this week? Well, uh, Streetcar Named Desire is back in the news because they are offering 500 free tickets to people under 25, uh, the sort of people who are not usually well represented at mm. West End theatre audiences. A uh, good ticket news. Yeah, good car. ticket news. <laughs> Interesting given the uh, controversy over how expensive those tickets were in the West End. And I think a very good move by them. Even though it yeah. is only one performance, it is only 500 tickets, I gather. Well, I mean, still, as you say, it's a good thing because they have been sort of slightly slightly shamed for the vast, vast quantities of money that it costs to see people get in to see Patsy Ferran in yeah. possibly the standout performance of the year so far. Yeah, and exactly. The other, the, you know, that other bloke, Paul Mascow. Um, yeah, that, 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 bloke. <laughs> that performance is on the is on the 2nd of May. Uh, I believe all the tickets have already gone. but uh, Most likely, I would have thought, but uh, worth uh, yeah. a try. Anyway. <laughs> Shall we get into our first review? Uh, I didn't see it, but Nick and Nick did. Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations. I know you want to leave me But I refuse to let you go this is a, a jukebox musical. You can't really. Uh, can't get away from it. Does it do what it says on the tin? Like a jukebox musical <laughs> probably is a jukebox musical about the uh, do what group who sort of metamorphosed into a soul and funk group. They are amazingly still going, having had, I think. 30 plus That was members. a staggering reveal at the end, what? I've got to say. Uh, well, when I, I thought, is this set in a different time? Because he can't still be. With the Temptations, he's still not no, but because this is the brainchild of Otis Williams, who mm. is the last surviving member of the original Five Strong lineup of the Temptations. He was also the motivating force of it. It's based on the um, memoir that he he co-wrote. So I think it's fairly partial. You know, it's his view of the history of the Temptations. Mm. Uh, Nick, what did you think? Well, I have to say, I was approaching this with some trepidation. I'm uh, not well. I'm a bit mixed on jukebox musicals. I've got to say, there are some good ones, but. Some you didn't like Jersey Boys, did you? Oh, I didn't really. And like this Jersey is from Boys. the creators of Jersey Boys. Absolutely. So I didn't have joy in my heart as I approached the theatre, I've got to say. Because some of these, you know, they can have patchy books, they can feel like a cynical grab for fans' hard-earned cash. <laughs> and if you don't like the music, well, you really are stuffed. I realise that it is aimed at, at fans. But um, going to see it, it, Temptations I'm fairly agnostic on. I like some of their songs and that's fine. But I have to say, this really blew me away. I really enjoyed this. The, the first song came on. And I thought, oh, all my fears are absolutely realised here. It was a sort of <laughs> very nondescript, I think one of their first hits. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a long night. But the show moved really quickly. It sort of scooted through their 
back catalogue. I mean, it's, in some cases, you probably wanted even a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my girl specifically, I think. Um, yeah. They, they went through that, that fairly quickly. I mean, it is fairly formulaic. It is how these things are done. It starts, you know, goes from street crime in Detroit to seeing the light and, and putting together the band and all the way up to have a 14 number ones and, and Hall of Famers, really. It's efficient, isn't it? Which it's sounds like faint praise, but it is amazingly efficient. The dance routines are, are really, really well drilled. The set does what it needs to do, really, doesn't it? The projections tell you which, which, where they're touring through. It does touch on a little yeah. bit of the politics of the time. They were an all-black group trying, yeah. to, trying to cross over yeah. with white audiences touring in the still extremely racist southern states. Yes. You know, they were shot at, they were abused when they were, uh, when they were in the Deep South States. Yeah. This was, you know, in the mid-60s. Very good of Motown took some songs off them oh. because he thought they were it was, they were too political for them. For so example, Edwin War, Starr's War. What is I it had, good for? Which I had no idea was written for them. No, no yes, it was written yeah. for them. That's such a good fact. Yeah. It's a great fact, and isn't it? It allows them yeah. to put it in the musical as well. As I said, it was sort of fairly formulaic, and the script is, should we say, um, it sort of pieces together homespun wisdom and turns it into dialogue. Characters sort of say home truths to each other rather than speaking in actual dialogue yeah, or right. come to the front of the stage and give us some sort of throwaway but quite funny line, but but not really what pe- people sort of say. But I think it's brilliantly directed Yeah. Um, in that you never have a chance to get bored. You just get swept along. I was never, I didn't go along thinking, I really want to find out about the history of the Temptations and came away going, wow, what a fascinating story. I described it as the book's a bit like a sort of sleeve notes thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you yeah, just, yeah. you know, it tells you all the things you need to know. Yeah. Um, it tells you a little bit about their romantic lives, which are all included in one song, I think. Yeah. All of wow. the romantic lives of the four other, ma- other original members, are, including one of them dated a member of um, the, Supremes, the Supremes, not Diana Ross, of course. Mary Wilson. You get a bit more about Otis Williams's life. And uh, mm. problems with his marriage and and bringing up his son. It turns out that he quite literally was a Rolling Stone, yeah. you know, yes. hardly ever at home, and just right. you know. Um, we should yeah. say that. I mean, ultimately, through all of this, the performers really carry this. I mean, they turned the classic five because there was one member early on who they got rid of. Yeah. He was a bit of a prima donna, I think. Yes, um, in so the Temptations. In yes. the Temptations. Right. So it's not the original five; it's the classic five. I see. Ah, uh, you're right. Um, yes, good point. They have. Amazing voices, obviously, amazing charisma, I think, on stage. And they really sort of pencil in the backstory. You really begin to root for them, certainly the classic five. Yes. Um, it's held together by Sofiso Mazibuko, who plays Otis Williams. He's sort of the glue of the group. He's never the front and centre, but he's yeah. sort of there in the background, holds everything together. He's not the lead singer, is no. he? They're, they're, you know, they have a sort of tenor and a, and a soprano lead singer yeah. who shift through various uh, incarnations. But yes, he's, well, he's, the, he's the man pushing for it and you know, yes. sort of keeping it together. And the one who, for me, really stands out was Tosh Winogo Maud, who, he, I mean, absolutely stellar as David Ruffin yep. I mean a very charismatic character so he does yep. stand out and a lead singer yep. so uh, but I just thought he was superb you can't take your eyes off him when he's, when he's performing there was an absolutely amazing moment I thought after when you were talking about their desire to cross over the politicisation of it yeah. when after Martin, Martin Luther King was shot and there's an extraordinary song which I had never actually heard called I Wish It Would Rain mm. and he sings it and he's 
comes up with tears on his face and it is an absolutely really powerful moment that I wasn't expected to be moved by this musical yeah. and I really was at, at, at that moment it, this was a hugely long runner on Broadway right. um, and really successful over there and the producers here are obviously hoping it will repeat that success because it's in mm. the Prince Edward which is one of the big musical houses you know mm. it's been home for a long time to Mary Poppins which oh and Mamma Mia great. as well before Mama that Mia wasn't was it for years for the original yeah. jukebox musical indeed yeah. um, but the, you know the, the, they just keep rolling out here you know my girl get ready since I lost my baby, ain't too proud to beg. I'm slightly surprised they called it. They named the show after "Ain't Too Proud," which I think certainly here is one of their lesser numbers. Mm. But maybe that's maybe that was bigger in the states. Very good band, very tight band. I'd say but they keep yeah. re- they refer to each other as the Temps, which I the found temps. slightly strange. And at one point, they do, <laughs> not they a do, phrase they use in the states. I no, think. quite often the Temptations were temporary. Yeah. Well, quite I, a few I was going to say, given the, the how they cycled through people, given maybe the turnover, exactly. You know, as a as a Temptations agnostic. I, I really was very entertained. So, yeah, I, I definitely had sunshine on a cloudy day. Ah, yeah. very good, <laughs> very good. Right, uh, time for a little break, I think. Coming up, I'll be joined by sex education star Amy Lou Wood and John McCree, formerly of Everybody's Talking About Jamie and Cruella, the film, who are both co-starring in Cabaret at the Kit Kat Club, John Kander and Fred Ebb's classic uh, musical set in Berlin in 1929. And we'll be reviewing Dancing at Lunasa at the National Theatre, so stick around. We are a part of that collection of two white men doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. Does that differentiate us at all? Does it? It totally helps with the topic. We're talking talking about about musicals. Yeah, we're talking about musical theater. (laughs) I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the gospel of musical theater wherever you get your podcasts. 
quite regularly. All of you are sort of signed up for 12 to 14 weeks, I think. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, MCs and Sally's are about three months apart. Yeah. 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 Uh, For those who don't know about this production, it opened fairly soon after lockdown. Mm -hmm. It involved the complete reconfiguration of what was the Playhouse Theatre as the Kit Kat Club. And it's it's quite a sort of exposing show, isn't it? You know, in that there's there's no scenery to hide behind, really, as such is there. You're right there. exposing. Yeah. I think that's what also was another realisation the other day of why this has been so brilliant but challenging. It's really emotionally vulnerable, Hmm. which I think musicals are anyway because there's singing involved and that's very vulnerable. And then the content of the play is, is very, quite emotionally heavy and also you're in the round yeah. so there is no escape and the stage is pretty small yes. so you actually feel very outnumbered like obviously you always are but as it's very stark that there's only you know a small space with us all kind of like cramped onto this quite small stage and then you're just completely surrounded by audience from all angles and like you say there's no scenery yeah. there's no set there's no anything so it's just it really is just us. Yeah. yeah, and there's an odd dichotomy as well between sort of you guys, you, your guys' character, I guess, in some ways, having a fourth wall, but I'm constantly breaking it. Yes. Yeah. And so you have to do really intimate scenes, kind of with the knowledge that you're being w- watched in a, in a weird way. Which but I'm without gonna... any acknowledgement yeah. of yeah. it. I that, see. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. And you can, see, you can see the audience, especially there's two boxes hmm. on the left and the right. And, I mean, they're, they're really close. And they're kind of... Fully lit. Like yeah, so when I'm singing lit. maybe this time, yeah. you know, I can really see that it's 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 really difficult to those intimate scenes are I I, I think the most kind of because sometimes you really feel like the immersive part of it, which is so great, but it's very much suited to the club yeah. parts of the play. So it's ve- like because you really do feel like you're in the yeah, club, but the so much of this play isn't in the club. Yes, of course. So much of this play takes place in, like, Cliff's bedroom. Yeah. And these very, very intimate scenes between Sally and Cliff. So in those moments, all of a sudden, you're kind of having to be like, to the audience, okay, completely different um, tone now. We're having to, like, kind of shift gears. And the writing of Cabaret is so brilliant. Like, the dialogue and the scenes are so well written, but it can sometimes be, yeah, a little bit difficult to steer it into that intimate territory after it's been so kind of raucous at the club. And I also think, I think mine hair is really the moment that people go, oh, this is not the film. Like, even though it's so different from the start, there's something about that moment, you you can feel it's like everyone is, or the people who have come thinking they're going to get the film on stage are going, where's the chair? Where's the hat? Yes. So when you're kind of walking on with, you know, a, a wig cap <laughs> and a big green fur coat. Yeah. And there's and no... A, and a handheld microphone. And a handheld microphone. You can feel that some people in the audience are going, huh? <laughs> Where's the chair? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there's there's definitely... There's people shouting, stage management. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The chair. But yeah, you can really feel in certain bits, the most iconic parts of the movie you can feel in the in the show from the audience the kind of like oh hmm. and you and that that can be a little bit scary sometimes like cuz some people 
you can tell really want the chair. Yes. And they right. really <laughs> and well, they really the want Liza. They've forgotten about the chair and they're yeah. really thinking about it. They you, want the Bob right? Fosse, yeah. you know, yeah. and and they don't get that. But I think by the end it's like Oh. I wasn't aware of you as a singer before, really, before this show. I thought of you as a dramatic actress. Yes. Had you, I mean, has this, had this been a secret you'd been keeping or something? Or had this been a, a long-held aspiration? Well, I'd, I've always wanted to play Sally. Yeah. And when I was 16, I did Guys and Dolls at school. And my audition for Guys and Dolls was maybe this time. Right. So that's quite a full circle moment. But no, I've never done a musical. Apart from at drama school, we did a little night music in third year of RADA. And I was Petra. Right. Maid. Okay. But no, I've never done... I've never done a musical. So. Well, I'd never have guessed, having seen it. I mean, it's such a huge one to jump into. It is. It's, it's not pretty big. It's not, <laughs> yeah. Well, it'd be easy from now on, won't it? I guess. Yeah. Because the company is so incredible and so solid, and like having John and everything, it's not so terrifying because you just feel very held. Yes. As someone who has not done a musical before, I have felt extremely supported. Great. John, you were stepping into a role created in this production by Eddie Redmayne, who's also co-producer on the show. Yeah. You were coming in a few few sallies after Jesse Buckley, who started off on this one. And of course, there's Joel Grey and Liza Minnelli from the film. Was there any, any, any sort of reticence about that or any awareness of it? It was definitely a challenge because I'd never done it before. I'd always been quite lucky to either create a role. There was a bit of apprehension, I guess you could say that, but there's so, I, I don't know, it's not the same for Sally, I suppose, but there's really nothing to go on with the MC other than the material that you don't know, you don't know anything about him. So he is really up for interpretation, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but I also, I am respectful of the amount of work that went into the rehearsals with the original cast. And there mm. are some things that we, we are doing that, that they have, they, they created in that rehearsal room yeah. and it's brilliant stuff. So why lose it sort of yeah. thing? And how about you, Amy? I think, I loved what Jesse did and I lo and everything that the previous Sallys have done but I can I think if mine had been similar if my interpretation you know had been similar I would be scared yeah but because I think we've all been so different to each other yeah, yeah. it kind of is less scary and I think maybe I wouldn't have wanted to do it so much if I kind of thought I wasn't going to add anything new I think I kind of just ha kept holding on to the fact of, of like Ours is different. Yeah, we're I very don't know different. If they Sally and MC would have cast us if we'd have gone in and done uh, replicas yeah. of what yeah. had already been done. I think they are actively looking for different things yeah. every time. I mean, yeah. for a fundamentally not a cheerful story, I have to say, each time I come to see it, I, fi I find myself uplifted by it. Weirdly, mm. there's something about being that close to people in that room that was particularly potent yeah. after lockdown. Yeah, and I think yeah. also our amazing prologue company beforehand. Yeah. When we first come on stage, you can feel that the audience have been in this world for a while. They've been primed, yeah, have they? For exactly. it? Yes. Yeah. I think it's quite interesting that um, the way this and the Pinter Theatre have become sort of laboratories for mm. things that, you know, yeah. this place used to be a bit off the beaten track and used to be one of the slightly lost theatres. Yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly it was turned into a refugee camp for um, the jungle yes. um, and it was turned into a shtetl for Fiddler on the Roof and yeah. it was turned into yeah. a, a sort of dystopia for 1984 and yeah. now this you know it's yeah. been turned into this 1929 Berlin nightclub I mean you really do forget it's especially strange and jarring on a matinee yeah because it really does that the atmosphere that's created in here is so it really does feel like that nocturnal mm. you know it feels very strange when you've done a matinee of cabaret to then go up walk up and be by the river and it's sunny and yeah. it's, and you're kind of it's so strange because you really do 
feel like you're in yeah like you've just in... escaped a basement yeah yes yeah yeah we should try and get john kander over before you guys finish your run who is the last surviving member yeah. of the creative team of cabaret who's i think reopening new york new york yeah, yeah. on broadway we're about to do a good look message at the for moment him. right yeah. fantastic and who's yeah. in his well into his 90s yeah because he I still think. gets he still gets approval over casting yeah, yeah. to approve us both yeah, yeah. I'd, so yes. I'm, i would be amazing thank you thank, thank you for you. approving us john. O- open invitation to john kander anytime yeah. in the next five weeks <laughs> yeah. terrific You've got five weeks, John. That was John McCree and Amy Lou Wood speaking to me. Thank you both for coming. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Let's go to a quick break. Right after, it's our review of Dancing at Lunasa at the National Theatre. We are a part of that collection of two white men doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. Does that differentiate us at all? Does it? It totally helps with the topic. We're talking, talking about, about musicals. Yeah, we're talking about musical theater. <laughs> I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the gospel of musical theater wherever you get your podcasts. 
time yeah. uh, before everything went kind of you yeah know. it's about five sisters the whole household is held together by kate who is yeah. a schoolmistress, played by justine mitchell who some people will be familiar with from david eldridge's beginning um and it's interesting that i think because she's played at the beginning she plays a sort of very early 30s woman kind of at the beginning of wanting to kind of have an adult life yeah. you know she's successful but she's she's young and in this one she's the oldest sister and she's sort of already school mommy yeah um you know she's she's a woman probably not far off my own age but she's been written off completely as an old maid yes and she's and she is sort of spinsterish and, and sort of prim isn't she yeah, yeah. um oh, she's great in it. Much, she it. is she is great in it there's maggie played by siobhan sweeney yeah yep. uh, familiar from the comedy circuit and well and from dairy girls, girls and from Derry she Girls, is Sister of Michael, course. the yes. fantastic mm. Sister Michael. I think she and Ardlo Hanlon, who plays the um, Uncle Jack, yeah. are probably the biggest names. But I do think that the whole cast is great. The sort of familial relationships are very nicely delineated. Don't yeah, you? they're basically the, not only is is uh, Kate looking after all her three sisters, she's looking after, as we say, Ardlo Hanlon's Jack, who has come back from, who's basically been drummed out of missionary service for going yeah. native in yeah. Uganda, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Um, he's exactly. basically lost his faith and has. has sort of gone over to to sort of um, the local religion out there. Yeah. Which has brought further shame on the family, on top of the fact that the youngest sister, Chris, played by Alison Oliver, who I think is a really coming talent, has uh, brought a child out of wedlock with this charming Welshman who sort of faffs by every now and again. Yeah. Dances, but he literally dances by, doesn't he? Yeah, um, he really does. How yeah. much dancing is actually in the play? There's not that much. There's not that much, <laughs> but sort of when it happens, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's significant dancing. The, I, I, I watched say. the advert and it looked like, well, it was pretty dancing heavy. It's occasional dancing and then there's talk of dancing. Right. Yes. Um, and the actual dancing is choreographed by a little known chap called Wayne McGregor. Mm. Oh. Um, but yeah, like, they don't dance a lot. And that they, is, in fact, one of the things It's like, they, you know, I think one of the things Kate is so obsessed with sort of being good and proper and, and, and the idea of dancing, even though all of them clearly adore it. Is it's kind of one of those things that they shouldn't really do as women of their age. It's a, the dancing here sort of represents paganism and freedom, doesn't it? You know, and and license, I suppose. That's mm. the thing that uh, Chris's lover is a great dancer. You yeah. know, he's an utterly feckless, very charming man, but he's a great dancer. And this is he effectively sort of danced her into bed, really. Yeah, That's pretty the hint. much. And um, Lunasa is refers to a pagan festival dedicated to the ancient god Lu. So again, if you're a good prim Catholic like uh, like the character of Kate, then you don't really approve of this sort of dancing. It, it harks back to an ancient sort of atavistic past that uh, that she's keen to dissociate herself from. Yeah, exactly. And I, I was talking about the familial relationships earlier. I think the character of Rose, Rose is quite well done because she has a learning disability yeah. and it's done with a really sort of nice light touch. At first, you're not sure whether she is just surprisingly young yes but actually over the course of the play you kind of realize what's going on and and that you know she's not probably not able to make the, the best decisions yeah i thought that was really carefully and nicely done actually yeah i really enjoyed this it seems to yeah. uh, the last time i saw this i think was about 10 years ago at the old vic where um a number of the cusack sisters were in it and one of the cores as well <laughs> oh, what a combo andrea core i think made her stage <laughs> i think made her acting debut in this and was credible oh. um but this is kind of nice because uh dancing at lunasa originally it was first staged at the abbey theater in dublin and it transferred to the National Theatre where mm. it's now being revived and that's where it sort of won all its awards and its original plaudits. Because you've seen it before, I can ask you, actually. Yeah. I loved the conceit and I would be interested to know if it's always done like this, of the small boy Michael 
um, being played by the grown man he becomes. Who he he sort of narrates because um, it's a memory yeah, play. Really, it is isn't a memory it? play. Yes. Um, but he's just sort of lurking on the edges while the women act to a small figure that isn't there. Yeah, is that normally what's done? I honestly can't remember, but I think <laughs> it was. It, it works. It, wor- it works extremely well here, as, yeah, as you say. He's played at a sort of little tangent to his younger self. Yeah, exactly. So he's standing at the side while the, while the women are addressing lines, as you say, to this invisible little boy. I'm usually not over keen on plays with narrators who come mm. in and tell you this this is what's happening yeah, yeah this is what's going to happen because <laughs> yeah. well, that does happen but, you're a bit like oh yeah. okay but, but here it, it's, it's actually fine it does work really well quick shout out to uh, Siobhan McSweeney yeah. in this who um, gives a, just a gorgeous performance as the sort of fun yeah teasing aunt yeah, isn't she fun, but she's the, she's the fun sister that holds it all together by kind of diffusing things yeah, isn't she and yeah. she's got it so it's this very broad while also subtle performance yep. I think I thought Ardell O'Hanlon was great as well actually as Uncle Jack so yeah sort of it's like, a difficult it, role that. it is because it's he... not a comedy role exactly and he's known for his comedy yeah Although some of his his sort of enthusiasms for the uh, kind of social and cultural and religious rituals of the village in which he spent his time in Uganda, they are actually very entertaining because they go on for a really long time and everyone around him gets really, gets progressively more awkward as they realise just how much he's got into this. Yes, they are. I think that this may be the one place where the the play slightly shows its age that I'm not sure you get away with that sort of equation of... um, African religion with paganism and things no, like that, exactly. with Irish paganism. That is a hurdle of which he, I think he gets over with consummate skill and yeah. ease. I only met Brian Friel once when he won an Evening Standard Award some years back. And um, he was a tiny, tiny man with a tiny, lovely wife who was a school teacher. Um, oh. And it was towards the end of his life. So I basically ended up carrying his Evening Standard Award around for him because <laughs> they're really heavy. You were his you amanuensis. Yeah, I, well, I was just sort of his heavy lifter, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but the you know the most charming man, the most beautiful writer. I think it's wonderful that this has been revived and revived yeah. so beautifully. And I really feel like you can feel the sort of love that he has for women. Yeah. Um. You know, having been brought up by a gang of them, um, and these are based on his aunts, and he really, really cares about the way that. Uh, society and the Catholic Church just sort of squash them. Yeah, I feel like that you know the tensions between that kind of overbearing influence and the and the vestiges of paganism that kind of cling to the way of life in this very remote place. Um, really come through. It's really sad for Kate because she's so obsessed with being kind of good and proper, like I said. But you can also see how clearly the church is going to kind of crushing her. Just not just kind of crushing her joy in things like dancing, but also tainting her by association with Jack yes. uh, because of you know what happened to him in Uganda, and then having more or less rejected his faith and. You know, her job is sort of, it becomes clear that that's going to be on the line. Yes. Just and for no reason and for reasons that they make up. Yes. But are clearly something to do with the fact that, you know, their family is not quite the thing. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. That's it for this week's episode of the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. You can find all our reviews and news online at standard.co.uk and all our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Amy and John for joining us for Cabaret at the Kit Kat Club. They are only in the show for a few more weeks, so get down to the Playhouse Theatre before it's too late. And of course, if you haven't done so, hit follow or subscribe so you'll always be reminded when a new episode drops in. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>